this is a rather fascinating podcast that's going to be shared on Let's Be Blunt with Montel, and it's immediately apparent that I am not Montel Williams, but I am sitting with Montel, and um, I have the privilege of talking to him about a range of subjects that I know he's very knowledgeable and very passionate about. This is also going to be distributed through other means, hence um, why I'm here. My name is Dr. Jonathan Sakia. Uh, I'm a surgeon by background, and I, I also have the privilege of having known Montel as a friend for many years. So first of all, Montel, welcome. Thank you so much for having me, Jonathan. So first of all, share with everyone briefly uh, some of the things you've done in your life, because you've, <laughs> you've been a busy guy. So we'll be here for, for hours. I, I literally, you know, uh, I started my professional career in the military uh, right after leaving high school in the United States. And um, I served as a special duty intelligence officer uh, in the U.S. Navy, but I started off enlisted in the Marine Corps. So I enlisted, went to the Naval Academy in Annapolis, got my degree in general engineering, a minor in international security affairs. My language at the time at the academy was Chinese. And so, of course, as soon as I graduated from the academy, they sent me off to the Defense Language Institute and where I studied Russian. I became a Russian linguist. And then from Russian, I uh, became a special duty intelligence officer. And prior to this current president, half the things that this guy does, had I done any one of them, had any <laughs> private meeting with any Russian person while I was on active duty, I'd be in jail even till today. Uh-huh. Um, you know, before I left the military, I started a program where I was speaking to kids across the country in the United States at a time when no one else had ever done this before, but I spoke in over 1,500 high schools across the country um, to about one and a half million young people talking to them about negative youth trends. And, and I have funded a nonprofit organization that literally gave back what we called stipends to schools that put together programs to help kids become successful. And then that turned into a media event everywhere I was, which then turned into what ended up becoming the Montel Web Show. So um, I ended up doing that for 17 years. And during the course of the Montel Web Show, I, I authored eight books, um, wrote two dramatic series, and uh, actually wrote and, and directed a feature film. And then, you know, I, I kept my nonprofit. But then um, after that, I started a brand which is called Living Well with Montel, which focuses on, you know, improving the lives of people from the inside out, if you will. I think that's probably the best way to describe it because I work on a lot of different initiatives when it comes to health. And then, you know, even in recent years, I think for 100% complete disclosure, you know, you and I uh, were among a group of six people who were the founders of an incredible medical device company that That's is right. right now working towards getting, you know, FDA and approval around the world for, you know, traumatic brain injury, but also for investigating right. other options, other opportunities. Well, so. I, I also want to point out that you've missed a few things. You, you, <laughs> you were regularly on television in, uh, uh, in, in, in a number of uh, dramatic and non-dramatic uh, oh, series. Oh, that's true. Um, and you've been an advocate and pretty damn good singer and uh, many, many other things. <laughs> um, one of the things that you, I remember you telling me about um, because of my interest in aviation, you told me that you wanted to be a, a fighter pilot and that you had an issue whilst you were in the Navy um, that led to 
uh, a series of events. Tell us briefly what happened. Sure. I, you know, I, I again, I, I started out my military career. I started out enlisted in the Marine Corps, and you know, I went through Paris Island boot camp, and you know, I did very, very well in the, in the Marine Corps as an enlisted man. I, I was meritorious promoted uh, three times. Um, that garnered me an opportunity to go to the Naval Academy prep school and the prep, and then into the Naval Academy. I went to the Academy, and while there, you know, four years are, are pretty. You know, it's stringent education. We, one of the only colleges in the United States that requires every member to take between 19 and 21 hours every semester. And it is an engineering degree. Everyone graduates from the academy with a degree in engineering. And you normally get to minor in something else. And so my entire four years at the academy was really focused on me eventually graduating and going back in the Marine Corps as a Marine Corps pilot. And as a matter of fact, while I was at the academy, I participated in a program there, which was a, you know, a civil engineering or civil aviation program where we had something called the VTNA, which is the uh, vertical attack squadron for the Naval Academy. And I literally worked at getting my private pilot's license. I flew for 19 hours and then I was going to take my test. And right before that chance happened, I literally, and this is now a fact, we have records that, that verify it. You know, right before you graduate from the Naval Academy, you get a series of pre-commissioning immunizations. And my class, which is the class of 1980 from the Academy, is the last group of people in the U.S. military to actually receive immunizations using a gun. And it was because the gun that they were using for us were standing in the line, aye, aye, sir. You know, the first 100 guys that walked through the line, about 50 of us got an overdose because the gun was set too high of the diphtheria typhoid immunization. And remember back then they used to give you, we had diphtheria typhoid and something else. Tetanus. Three of them, tetanus. Tetanus. Three of them together. And uh, I think the gun was set for the first 50 guys um, somewhere around 20 times higher than it should have been set. And I was one of those first 50. And it immediately sent me into, now, the shot didn't cause MS, but what the shot did was it caused such an impact to my immune system that I probably had the gene that was already there that would have been MS. It would have developed itself probably 20 years later. But it sent me into what was be considered a bout. And what, I mean, was, what was the first manifestation? Oh, I went blind almost within... Yeah. Three hours of the shot, I went uh, blind in my left eye. Yeah, and it it recovered. It came back. Your vision over came time, back. it's come back, yeah. but not completely. And you had issues have, with colorblindness. I have well, well. issues with colorblindness. I have what's yeah. called a, a muscatoma in yeah, my left scotoma. eye. Yeah. It's three times larger than normal scotoma. I have what's called an afferent pupillary defect, which means my pupil reacts differently even to the day, still does, to light and, and darkness. And whilst visual disturbances are not an uncommon first manifestation of multiple sclerosis, you weren't diagnosed because anyone who, I can't imagine that there's anyone listening who doesn't know who you are, but if they didn't know who you are, they would have probably thought you're probably not a white nor northern european woman <laughs> right, right correct okay. and back then that was the That's... that was the diagnosis if you go to you know back then you went to the pdr or any one right. of the, the desk restaurants for doctors look at ms and it said normally you know seen in women of northern european descent yeah and hardly ever at that point in time i think the only african-american that anybody had ever diagnosed was lola falana yeah. and richard pryor richard yeah. pryor's diagnosis was based more on the fact that he's a crackhead mm -hmm. you know so um nobody really assumed and i i, I wait at the time 
This happened. I was, I'm was i six foot tall, so I weighed 220. I had a 20 to 28, 29-inch waist. I was a boxer, a powerlifter. I was really, 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 really active. And so each doctor that saw me would go, can't be MS. It's got to be yeah. something else. Yeah. <clears throat> and so and not only did I have the visual issues, I had some really strange pockets of pain all over my body. Mm-hmm. That, Describe them. <clears throat> like they would come and go. They would come and go. And back then they weren't as severe as yeah. they turned into. Yeah. But – it would be, and we'll talk about that yeah. in a little bit. But so you were having a whole series of symptoms over the years. And, no one told you you had MS. Oh, wait a minute. Let's let's say when this first happened, literally the military sent me down to Walter Reed. I was in Walter Reed. I was at Bethesda. I went to Johns Hopkins. I went to the Walls Eye Clinic. Mm-hmm. I went to the Walmart Eye Clinic. I went to some of the best specialists. The U.S. military was spending a lot of money to graduate me as an naval officer and was leaving to lose me as a naval officer. As a matter of fact, three of the people who were overdosed and never got commissioned. Mm-hmm. And my commission was postponed. Um, for six months, I was put on a medical hold because they didn't think that I was going to recover. Now, I should back up and tell you that I went blind in my left eye. My vision went from 20-20, perfect vision, to 2600 in my left eye, 20-20 in my right. Mm-hmm. And then it stayed there until mm, four months after the shot. And then it started to slowly come back. And some of the irritation in my optic nerve started to settle down. Yeah. And it settled back in at around 2100. And that put me in a position that the military could then go ahead and employ me, but they employed me in what was considered an MPQ status, which is not physically qualified status, which meant that I had to literally pursue one of two jobs, either a supply corps officer mm-hmm. or they told me because of your language skills, you know, we could get you into this little area that's called special duty intelligence as a, excuse me, as a cryptologic officer. Right. So I went, okay, let's do that. Stay with us. We'll be right back. Do you want to know how to become a social media influencer, how to grow an online business, how to make money from your laptop and build a profitable online company? Well, I'm going to show you how in my podcast, Living the Red Life. I built a million-dollar company at the age of 25, a $10 million company at the age of 30, and now I'm the A-list celebrity marketer that speaks around the world on how to transform businesses and make them profitable using Facebook ads, marketing, social media. My name is Rudy Moore, and I'm super pumped to bring you my podcast, Living the Red Life. I know this is going to become your new favorite podcast, and I'm going to show you how to grow a profitable online company step-by-step every single week. Beats the hell out of being a supply yeah, officer. Yeah, beats the hell out yeah. of being a supply officer. And so um, now I'm supposed to be not physically qualified, but when I got into the job as a a special duty intelligence officer, I ended up spending more time at sea and in, you know, combat areas than any of my peers did because, you know, the job that I had, I ended up I had well over 320 days under the water, mm-hmm. I about 360 days on the water on almost every platform that the U.S. military has to offer. I did three submarine trips that were, you know, no shorter than 75 days and the longest one was 90 days for hatch to hatch. Mm-hmm. That's when you go in, they close yeah. the hatch. They don't open that hatch for 90 days, my friend. Yeah. Uh, uh, so, you're, you're not getting me in one of those things, but oh, you crazy. saw your way through your military career. Yeah. You then went out on the speaking circuit. Saw my way through my military career, going to a doctor almost every six to eight months. And not getting diagnosed. Not being diagnosed. So the share with people who are listening when you were diagnosed and what what led to that and what it felt like. Well, what's really crazy is I went – this this shot took place in 1980. I – 
literally stayed on active duty till 1991 and a half. Um, and then I got out of the military. I stopped. I walked away from the military and I uh, started my career, you know, um, in television. And it was in really 1999. I woke up one morning and I, again, every couple of months I would have some really anomalous, strange neurological issue, whether it be tingling in my hands, you know, light tingling in my feet, pain in my side. And it was like a, it was like a, a stabbing pain. I, I could be sitting here talking to you and it's so like somebody took a razor blade and would slice me in my side. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I feel down there and there's nothing. Go to a doctor and two days later it was gone anyway. So yeah. I didn't know how to explain it. Yeah, I can't tell you what's going on, but something's weird happening here. Nobody could explain it. And then I woke up one morning, literally on an airplane. <clears throat> I was flying to Utah. I'll never forget. It. And I woke up. I got on a plane early. I went to sleep before it even took off. And my feet went on fire. I literally felt like I, my feet were burning. Which and, is not an unusual manifestation of neuropathic pain. It's a burning whilst uh, you're getting electric shocks. Yes. Yeah. Almost, almost to the point that I, I described, I remember describing it back then as if somebody took a, a fire poker and set it in the fire, then took it out of the fire and just jammed it up in my heel and just started digging it around. So and you I went got, to see someone? Went to see a doctor, and, and really, I, it just so happened that that trip, I was literally going to, I was flying out to shoot an episode of, a, of an old television series that was called Touched by an Angel. And uh, I was going to stay with a friend of mine who was a doctor in Utah. When I literally walked, rolled up to his house, got out of the car, he said to my then ex-wife, um, or my now ex-wife. Yeah, now ex-wife. Yeah, now yeah, ex-wife. He said to her, I think he's got MS. I He just said it out of the blue and set me up with, to go see a doctor the next day. I went the next morning, and the pain was so excruciating, I could not even really, I didn't want to put my feet on the floor. Yeah. Um, I didn't want anybody touching me, mm -hmm. um, coming near me. And, uh, you know, I went through the whole two-hour in the office, you know, it, Picking me, uh, pricking me with pins and sticking me with little needles and the whole nine yards. And he walked away, literally just said, you know what? I'm positive you have an ass. So walked out the door. Mm -hmm. yeah, I remember yeah. when you and I talked after you were diagnosed that um, the brutality, quite frankly, oh. of the way that you were treated and the expectations that you had that your life was going to, you know, prepare for a wheelchair, prepare for a catheter. Yeah, um, you go, if you go back and look at the literature back in, you know, 1999, even then, the literature really for doctors was that this is a, di a diagnosis for women of, of you know, Northern European descent. And they had four or five categories that they said yeah. an African-American males was in the worst category. Uh -huh. And, you know, one of the first line in that, that literature this clown gave me, this doctor gave me was that, you know, I could expect my life expectancy to be shortened by 15%. I was like, what? You know, I'm reading this this garbage, and and literally, it just was a a paragraph that basically said, "Stand by to die." Yeah. Well, I I really want to focus on the positives, Montel, because yes. you're one of the most positive people sure. uh, that I know. And well, it was that second that made me be positive. Made you. I said, "Listen, I mean, you didn't know me when I walked in here. Yeah. So how dare you think you have a crystal ball and have the ability to prognosticate, prognosticate and figure out what I'm going to be like tomorrow? You don't even know what I was like yesterday. So how do you know what I'm going to be like tomorrow? Exactly. And, yeah. I remember 
um, and I'm sure you do as well, the uh, public service announcements mm -hmm. that you made. And one said, um, I have MS, MS doesn't have me. Absolutely. And I know that you were such a an inspiration to many patients. I'd just like to tell a brief story, mm -hmm. and then maybe that will inspire you yeah. while you have a sip of your very nice coffee. Mm -hmm. um, uh, maybe in, inspire you to tell us about some of the advocacy things that you that you've done and are doing for patients with MS. You and I were having lunch together with some other folks in New York a bunch of years ago, and a very nicely dressed gentleman came over, apologized for disturbing you, um, and he clearly wasn't just autograph hunting. He told you that he had MS mm. and that he had really struggled with his diagnosis and had felt suicidal, and you gave him a big hug. He had given you his business card. And you wrote your cell phone number on the back and gave it back to him and said, if you ever feel bad, call me, because I know that's the kind of guy you are. But that was touching one person. Tell us about some of the things you're doing to touch hundreds of thousands, if not millions of people living with neurologic disease. Well, you know, the very first thing I did was I, I realized this is something that's been just a, a piece of who I am. I don't believe you can't solve a problem without knowledge. And so the first thing I did when I was in that doctor's office and he hands me one piece of paper, I literally went berserk. The internet was just starting back then. We really hadn't had the internet that we have today. And I literally went up on the internet, went to the library. I tried to look up everything I could look up and find when it came to MS because I figured, you know, I'm going to have to be my own advocate here. People are telling me that I'm the only black person that they know that they diagnose this way. Then that means that they don't know anything about black people with MS. So I better know something. So I literally got busy learning and trying to, my best to figure out if I could learn things that could help me mitigate some of my symptoms and figure out how to thrive with MS rather than succumb to it and just do what this guy wanted me to do is go home and, and let my life waste away. And I think every interview that I did, and it was pretty traumatic. I mean, I'm here I am, you know, nationally syndicated television show host. I was on the air at that point in time for nine years. I just won an Emmy. I'm on the cover of many magazines. I'm doing a, my own dramatic series on network television. And a lot of people who were following me who immediately realized I had MS, there were a lot of those people who were my viewers who were at home every day that were told that they can't do anything except for sit at home. And I wanted to make sure that I reached out to them and set an example to say, you know, the more knowledge you have and the more you I still think to today, uh, you, you and with knowledge, you cannot be denied. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, the more knowledge you have, one, eases the ideas that other people may set to set a standard for you. You know, I, I never believe in living up to or down to anybody else's expectation but my own. Yeah. And so, you know, when people you go into a doctor's office and the doctor says xyz and i'm not i'm not knocking you jonathan i love you you know you know i do but you know if doctors were god none of us would be sick and there's none of them that are gods and so you know i think uh if we really really stop and think about it no matter whether or not you're afflicted by this disease in a way that you know it can take away your mobility it can take away your synaptic connections to, to make you unable to walk to be able to stand, unable to sleep, unable to do so many things. But if you have the ability to move one finger, then why not figure out how to move that finger better than anything? Yeah, you got it, man. And and I know that your advocacy for yourself, you can't be an advocate mm -hmm. for other people unless you're an advocate Correct. for yourself. And, Absolutely. And you are. And thinking about 
thinking about your physical fitness, you've always been a guy in, into fitness, right? And um, again, people may not know, but it's just over a year ago that you had a cerebellar stroke. Yes, sir. And uh, I saw you in hospital. A major one. And yeah. you, you were, it was not pretty. And yeah. you got better. Um, I'm not, I don't want to focus on any of the treatments. I just want to make the comment that you got better because you were determined to get better. No question. And you were utterly focused. And that's the key thing. So going back to this fitness uh, business, how does a guy who is um, a military officer, a military background, your, your parents were no slouches. They right. were very, very disciplined people. Um, your father was a firefighter. How does a guy with a military background, a very strong moral compass, right, publicly as well as privately, who's into physical fitness, how does he suddenly get to start using marijuana? Hey, let, me, let me tell you a very interesting one. I, I would say from this point. Because just a wild night with you at dinner, if you have a glass of wine, that's mm. you're, you're really letting your hair down. And I want to tell you right now, last two nights ago was the first night that I've had a sip of alcohol in a year and a half. Mm -hmm. I literally stopped drinking the day a doctor came to me, and I, let me back up, but that diagnosis of MS happened in Utah. I went and got, got it backed up with a second diagnosis, making sure it was true, it, at a doctor in Harvard, and I won't give his name, but um, you know he's, he's considered one of the top doctors in the field of MS. And you know I addressed the fact that I had such neuropathic pain that, that it was literally almost unbearable, and I'm not knocking him, but what's the normal thing and what's been the normal pathway that doctors had uh, over the course of the last 20 years? They started diagnosing or, no, sorry, prescribing opioids. Well, for that first year and a half of my diagnosis, I think I went through almost every opioid on the planet and found out after a year that I have a little bit of an aversion to opioids. I'm not as susceptible to them as other people are. So what would require, you know, and most people could take two of something I was taking five and six. And at a point where, you know, I was chasing doctors to get prescription filled. And unfortunately, you know, as a, as a celebrity, I had an opportunity to pick up the phone and call any doctor I knew and they'd write a script for me no matter where I was. So I was taking back then, I don't give out the names of drugs because I'm not going to put down any other drug. Those drugs all have a purpose. And if they're used correctly, they can actually help people. Absolutely. When they're used incorrectly in the way we've done so in the United States, mm -hmm. they can become as deleterious as they have become. Yeah. Uh, but I pushed it to the point where I want to tell you that do I call myself an opioid addict? I, I probably was back before it was vogue to say that. I know I was. If I, if I could take seven of one particular pill in a day and not drool in a corner, there's something wrong with me. And I was taking seven and eight of these things. And... Every time I ran out, I would literally go back to one particular doctor and say, look, did I, I, I dropped these. I, I dropped them in the toilet. I dropped them in the sink. They got wet. Yeah. You know, I, I destroyed some. And as a really good friend, he said, I'm done with you. I'm not right anymore. Um, I know what you're doing. I know the other doctors you're talking to because some of them called me. And they're not writing you any scripts anymore anyway. So you have to figure this out, Montel. There's no reason for you to be taking that much. So I suggest something to you. I'm not going to ever say that I told you this. I will never admit this. But I heard from a couple of patients who have MS symptoms like yours that they've gotten some relief by using this marijuana. 
And let let me explain to you how crazy this is. This is in 1991. This doctor who knew nothing about cannabis at all, nothing, Mm -hmm. said, and I heard that there's this type of cannabis that's at the CB something. There's some weird type of cannabis, not the same thing that everybody else uses, but it's a weird kind. What he was trying to say was that there was different cannabinoids, and one of those cannabinoids is something called CBD, and we found that CBD has an analgesic, anti-inflammatory effect, but back then they didn't know that. It wasn't as published and widely read, but he heard something about this. Now, back in, this is back in 1991, no, sorry, sorry, 2001. 2001, right. I started looking for CBD-rich cannabinoids and cannabis. This be, I remember Sanjay Gupta just did a special five years ago, which now all of a sudden people think there was like a light bulb went off. I'm talking almost 20 years ago. Mm-hmm. I was looking for cannabinoids in the CBD spectrum that I knew would help to impact my pain. And the first time I found a strain that was, you know, and back then, again, we weren't growing cannabis and there's a lot there's so much the cannabis history that needs oh, to we're be, gonna come on be, to that trust yeah, me we, but, we really have to talk about because i mean one of one of the issues that we had was you know from about the 1960s through the middle of the 70s america and i'm gonna blame us for a lot of the 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 misinformation and then a lot of the the poor cannabis that's out there in the world today but a lot of growers of cannabis in the united states try to breed the cbd out of the plant Mm-hmm. They try their best to, to breed a plant that was the highest in THC, THC that they yeah. can pro- produce, not knowing that, contrary to popular beliefs, and I'm going to say this right now, people are going to go, oh, you can't be telling the truth. THC is not the only cannabinoid responsible for euphoria. Mm-hmm. It's the fact that they all work together in the entourage effect. And there's you many can, of them. And there's many of this right now. There's research in, in Canada that claims that there's 165 or yeah. more cannabinoids out of Israel. The doctor who's responsible for actually having identified CBD, THC, and the endocannabinoid system is a doctor by the name of Raphael Meshulam, who 16 years ago discovered and said that THC, Delta 9, was the active ingredient that caused most of the euphoria, but it requires an entourage effect of all the other cannabinoids working together. together. But you started using this, so at around 2001. 2001. And And you were were using it in in a vaporized form, right? Back then, 2001, I literally first started actually smoking cannabis. Yeah. And then, and you and smoking—that's not going to be found no, in the same sense. It was, you know, I was actually smoking a leaf, and then I realized after I started digging into this myself that if I switched over and started actually smoking something that was called the keef, which is, lack of a better term, the pollen mm-hmm. of the plant, the pollen in the flower. That pollen is the most rich. In the CBD. Yeah, and yeah. It's not only CBD, but in all the cannabinoids. Yeah. Very, very rich in cannabinoids. So I started smoking only the pollen. Then I realized that I could vaporize that pollen and get a better extraction out of it. So back then, this is back in 2002, 2003, yeah. and people uh, went nuts because the German government approved a product that was called a volcano. That was this device that they were actually using in a few hospitals that would actually capture the vapor in a big plastic bag, yeah. and that big plastic bag could be hung on an IV pole. And they were allowing patients back in 2002 and 2003 to utilize, you know, on the side, cannabis in a hospital. So let me tell you, back when I trained, so when I trained, mm-hmm. there was no education, there was no knowledge about the endocannabinoid system and that the human body is actually 
tuned to react to it. Mm -hmm. I have to tell you that now the medical system is still not up to um, uh, up to snuff and up to snuff <laughs> <laughs> inadvertent. Right. You and I need to have a conversation about what we can do um, uh to to educate people about and to educate doctors but i will tell you you nailed it education 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 education, education of everyone just, doctors, just like real estate location location, will, education. location location education education i will tell you that when we were training one of my teachers when i was a house officer told us about the value of smoking marijuana mm. uh, for patients who were dealing with intractable pain or yes. nausea uh, especially with cancer chemotherapy. And I can tell you as a house officer, I would talk to patients about it. But, you know, it's like, why not? These poor people are in pain or are vomiting. That sucks. That's right. And I want to come on to um, tell us a little bit about the history of how the cannabis plant came to be demonized in the United States. Because it's a fascinating story. Well, people would need to understand, cannabis have you, is one of the oldest written about medical substances on the planet. First written about 5,000 years ago in Chinese documents, a pharmacopoeia of medical plants. And over the course of the last 5,000 years, cannabis has been acknowledged for its medical benefits. There were times in history where, you know, let's go back to something very factual that people don't understand. You know, the three wise men, Brought the baby Jesus, incense, frankincense, and myrrh. Yes. Well, look up what frankincense is. Yes. Frankincense is a cannabis plant. Uh. If the three wise men thought it was good enough to give to the baby Jesus, <laughs> excuse me. Yeah, well, I'm, just, I'm just saying. We're, we're not going to get into getting, not getting gonna, cannabis to I'm, kids. I'm not, no, but, but, yeah. but think about that. It was, let's go back in time for a minute. Go back 2,000 years ago when, you know, we didn't have nice porcelain bathrooms. You didn't have water that was, you know, coming out of pipes. People were going out in the field grabbing a leaf. Life was tough, you know, and 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 when they discovered a substance that had so many different usages, and the people don't understand the term cannabis comes from cannabis. Back in time, we used cannabis or hemp. And hemp, and let's get this straight, the hemp plant and the, and the cannabis plant are the same plant. One yep. flowers, the other one doesn't. Mm -hmm. Okay? So the hemp plant is what we utilize all over the world for clothing, for ropes. And there was a, there's a link to in American history to the American Civil War. Oh, let's back up before the Civil War. The entire Revolutionary Army, George Washington, stomped around Montel, in a hemp Montel. uniform. I'm, I'm, an, I'm an Englishman. Let's not go back. Okay, well, yeah, well, on, that's going to well, be uncomfortable. But, okay, but, well, but I, but I, let's just say this: that in the United States of America, when it was first started, you were considered a traitor if you were a farmer and you did not grow hemp. Every ship that sailed in the world, the sails were made of hemp fiber. Every rope on a ship was made of hemp. And part of the reason why, even even when you were a sailor, the only thing you could mutiny about was if the captain of the ship didn't give you your ration of rope. Mm -hmm. Excuse me, my boy's out at sea getting rained on every day, eating funky bad fish, hanging his butt over the end of, a, of a, the, the ship, going to the bathroom and wiping himself with his hand. You know, stop and think about it for a second. How do you get people to do that every single day and do it comfortably? If you had a little euphoria while you're out there hanging out, it makes things go by a little quicker. Yeah, well, you know, 
we could come on to the adult uses of uh, this, but I think that's subject for 10 more podcasts. Okay, right? okay, let's back up. How about just, just the fact that people used to eat because we know that the hemp plant and the cannabis plant is one of the highest protein-laden seeds on the planet. Most human beings ate hemp porridge every day. Didn't get a euphoria because you don't get a euphoria from, from consuming marijuana unless you heat it up. Mm-hmm. You know, THC is in a form inside the plant called THCA, which is a THC acid. That acid does not make you, give you a euphoria. You can eat hemp plants all day long if mm. you don't heat them. Well, let's come them. on to the the hemp, the, the link between hemp as a fiber yes. and the um, criminalization of yes. the plant because so, it's a great story. So jump 300 years, 200 years later, you know, and throughout the entire plantation rule world, throughout the Wild West, people consumed and smoked marijuana on a regular basis. They did so because, again, life was tough out there. And rather than drinking alcohol all day long, people actually chose that, made that their choice. Now, roll into hmm, 1900, and I cannot remember the exact date of prohibition, the first date of prohibition when the United States made alcohol illegal. There was one of the leaders of this entire movement was a guy by the name of, um, it's either Harry or Henry Anslinger. Anslinger, was the guy who back then in the early 1900s was appointed as, if you will, our drug czar. And he actually was a supporter of cannabis during and throughout the entire period of uh, prohibition because he figured if people needed an alternative, this was a safer one, more less violent alternative. But then as soon as prohibition was lifted, he decided that because, and it wasn't just him that decided this, you know, he had some very, very, very wealthy backers, one by the name of William Randolph Hearst and the other one by the name of DuPont. And DuPont looking to make sure that he could actually capture the textile industry. And William Randolph Hearst was after chopping down every big tree he could find to produce more and more wood. And let's remember that hemp is a weed. Mm-hmm. Throw it in the field. I don't have to go out and, and pay attention to it. It grows on itself. So you had a fiber that was being used back then for sails, rope. And even, let's tell you this, Harry Anslinger, or Harry Anslinger worked his tail off to make sure that cannabis became an illegal substance. But the only way he could do that was to vilify it because so many people enjoyed it. So he had to vilify it by saying that the only reason why it's here is because those Mexicans and those darkies that we had out in the field working that we gave cannabis to to keep them in the field. Think about this. How the hell would you think if you're a slave that you're going to be out in the field in 100 degree weather picking something all day long without a little euphoria? They didn't care that the slaves were using it. So they tried to point to slaves and Hispanics and even change the name from cannabis to marijuana because they were associating it with back then the term Mary Jane was a term used for what was a derogatory term, derogatory yeah. term used to represent you know South American prostitutes. Mm-hmm. So, so he came up with a very, very clever public relations strategy. Evil. Produced but. this movie that made sure that every villain in the movie was of dark skin. And even there is there are records of Henry Anslinger standing on the steps of the Capitol saying that cannabis makes white women want to have sex with black men and, and Hispanics, using the derogatory term for black men and Hispanics, and would make a black man step on a white man's shadow. Mm-hmm. This is out of his mouth. 
Yeah. And the country jumped aboard it and they decided bought it. they bought it. Yeah. And then for the next 35 years, he worked to make sure that the UN banned hemp worldwide until 1961-62. So the whole world followed suit because of a racist attitude in the United States. It had nothing to do with the fact that this was some sort of a, a chemical that was going to injure people or hurt people. And as a matter of fact, in the entire history of marijuana until recently, there has never been a death from marijuana consumption. Now, recently, because again, some unscrupulous people have decided to mix some really deleterious chemicals together in the black market way, and I have been a huge proponent of making sure that the government steps in and all governments step in and set standards for how we produce and replicate and 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 actually distribute the product. Which is what you're doing now. I mean, you're taking Absolutely. again huge surprise you're taking a leadership position in <clears throat> advocacy i know i started um, that back in 2001 yep. 2002 and, and the, you know folks should know that you are probably or certainly uh, responsible for the legalization of the medical use of this plant across how many states now I, in I, the united I, states I, I, it's right now 34 states and 34. the district of columbia but I literally have testified before help write or help work on the legislation in 12 of those states myself. Yeah. And internationally? And what, are, it, what are you doing internationally? Internationally, I literally have been spoken in Israel on multiple occasions. I've spoken in Jamaica on multiple occasions. I've been invited to do conferences all over the world about cannabis and its effect and why it's a viable substance that should be considered for medical use. So there are some companies making um, pharmaceutical grade, if you will, and I don't want to mention sure, names. Right. but. Countries in the world, name a few that have legalized its use well, for know, medical use, not I, the adults. I'm going to say Great Britain, right? I mean, Great yeah. Britain, England has 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 had a company that is a a British-based company that has been one of the forerunners. I'm not necessarily as supportive of their technique uh -huh. and what they do. But they've created a, a compound that they literally put through the rigors of FDA approval and got FDA approval for recently. Because it, it works. Because it, it does work. The marijuana plant or the cannabis plant has right now anywhere between 66 and maybe well over 300 cannabinoids, phytocannabinoids, phytocomponents that literally have some form of medical effect. We should be researching those to find out what they are. But, you know, when you talk about CBD, there's THC, there's THCA, there's CBD, um, CBDV, there's CBG, CBN, and the numbers go on and on and on. And when you put together the doctor who discovered all this, again, is a guy by the name of Raphael Mashulam, and he discovered this based on research that he did that was funded by the United States over the last 20 years in Israel, and for those listening who don't know this, the U.S. government gave itself the patent know, for CBD, which is absolutely ridiculous well, that they could do that and claim to own the patent. You know, you and I have held conversations in the past about um, what do they say that uh, a country gets the leaders it deserves mm -hmm. and uh, any man who seeks political office is by definition ill-suited to hold it. As we yeah. head to wrapping this up, Montel, sure. I'd like like you to think about what do you think some of the other global health challenges that we face globally so this is being this is coming to people from uh, from london mm -hmm. in england which is still part of the united kingdom and at the moment still part of europe lord knows where that's going to take us uh, but a little earlier today they made some decision that hopefully yeah, it will well, be ratified yeah, yeah i'm i'm not holding my breath good but but 
you you travel extensively. Mm. You were just in elsewhere in Europe. Um, what do you see as some of the global health challenges that we as responsible people should be addressing? I just spoke at a conference at the UN uh, three weeks ago on the rising cost of what is considered, um, you know, uh, healthcare and um, sorry, I just skipped the word, lost a word in my brain, but uh, for various illnesses that are right now, you know, systemic all over the world, you know, everything from osteoarthritis to, you know, the fact that, you know, we still have a large population, even though the United States has fought it, but a lot of smokers out here in this world right now. And our alcohol consumption is extremely high in the world. One of the biggest issues right now is trying to make chronic illness, that's sorry, the word I was looking for, but, you know, trying to make chronic illness affordable. And one of the things that people have not noticed is that, you know, countries like Israel. Israel made cannabis a geriatric drug. If you turn age 70, you can walk into one of five different hospitals down there, show them your ID card, and they will give you your first prescription of cannabis. And what have they seen happen when they do that? The second they give a 70-year-old or older cannabis, they start to reduce the number of other drugs that they need. Yeah. So what we should be doing, I think, you know, the biggest issue right now, there's, there's a couple of when it comes to healthcare. One, expectation. In the United States, we are still, still spending about 66% of every dollar spent on healthcare is spent for people who are in their last two to three months of life. We're spending 66% of our healthcare dollars on people who are 80 and older. And I'm not, I, I, well, look, I, mean, I, I, I love my, my mother just passed away. And I know no, your mother's no. been in poor health. My mom passed away. My mom passed away. She had, had already had a, lo a lobe removed, mm -hmm. a lobe, and she, lung cancer had come back in another lobe. She had cancer in her throat. She also had, uh, she died of, of really heart failure, congestive heart failure. Uh, she had a pacemaker that had been there for 12 years. She was 86 years, 85 years old when she passed away. Now, about three weeks before, she, or no, three months before she passed, she went to the doctors and the doctors sat down with her and my dad in a room and said, well, I think if we do this operation and that operation and this, that, and that, you know, we can probably, you know, get some success out of this and extend your life. She said, well, extend my life how long? Maybe three, four months. And she looked at my father and looked at that doctor and said, I'm done. Stop it. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to do this. And literally went home and that day told my, my dad, I'm staying here for about the next month, but then you're putting me in hospice because mm -hmm. I don't need to go through this. Why am I going to go out the door spending a million and a half on an operation that's going to give me three or four more days laying in a bed hooked up to tubes? Well, that's why lifespan is only part of the equation, health span. Health span, no question. Health, and we should, you know, I think a takeaway message whenever I speak to you is that by taking ownership of your health, I Correct. mean, like what part of the term your health don't you understand? Correct. Take ownership, empower yourself, and make decisions. I actually, um, I went through the process of defining what my end of life situation mm -hmm. is, and I'm damn specific about what will and will not happen. And I was told by the attorney, well, I think you should let your children make the decision. And I said, the last <laughs> yeah. thing I want, actually, some, there are some days where I think they would decide, pull the plug now, right. pull it now. Well, you know, we have this whole thing where we're trying to hold uh, companies responsible for their carbon footprint. Yeah. Why can't we hold the individual responsible for your healthcare footprint? I love I mean, that. Why is it that we don't take the time right now to say to people, and you know, they, they argue about the rising cost of healthcare in the United States? Well, if we tell people in the United States, listen to me, 
I'm going to start giving you credits for what you do to make yourself healthier. Yeah. So how about if I notice that over the course of the last five years of your life, well, this last year and coming to doctor's visits, you've increased and I can do this. I can check you now because I can give you a Fitbit or give you something to have wear around your wrist. And I know if you've exercised at least three to four days a week, yep. if you've exercised three, four days a week, and I notice that your cholesterol levels change because you actually took my advice and you lowered, you know, the bad food and the processed foods that you're yep. eating, you started eating a little bit better. And then I noticed that you started to pay attention to things like your own mindfulness and took a break every now and then and rested a little bit, truly, truly rested. Why should I not give you credit because you're not impacted? Impacting the healthcare system. Look, I'm a 63-year-old man who just had a stroke a year ago, year and a half ago. I have MS. I'm supposed to be costing the healthcare system in the United States of America well over $200,000 a year. That's what I'm supposed to be costing it. But I see a doctor now once every six months. I just saw one three months ago, and they told me they didn't want to see me now for another year. So that means that my out-of-cost expense on the medical medical system in the United States is probably under twenty grand a year. It should be well over two hundred thousand a year. Why don't I get some credit for that? Since I'm not costing you, you anything, I if I'm not, if I can continue to do that, agree with you. I should have. You know, we you know this thing called. I, I just spoke at an event. Uh, I always speaking everywhere. About three weeks ago, one of the biggest the Hackensack medical community out of New Jersey, yeah, yeah. which is one of the biggest you know medical That's conglomerates in New York. Really, yeah. medical, right? I spoke to him, and the, the CEO was sitting in the room, and I said, "You know what? You've heard about something called Bitcoin, right? Mm-hmm. Well, how about this? I'm gonna give you one. You can have this. Take this and run with it. Why don't you create something called Health Bitcoins, where if I save money by not seeing a doctor, and not because I'm afraid to see a doctor, but because my health is such that I don't have to see you and you don't have to do anything to me, why don't you give me some credits like in these health bits? And then I can use those health bits when I come in to pay for the services that I need to have. You know, you some, have, some health insurance companies do do that. You know, my health more insurance company, they, they do. They gave me one of these Apple watches and then they encourage me. I get free membership of a gym and all the rest. But you're absolutely right. You know, in wrapping up, I want one one empowering sentence you can give everyone who's listening. One thing that they can take away, write it out on a piece of paper, stick it on their refrigerator, look at it every morning and say, I'm doing that because Montel Williams said so. How about right? you alone own the definition of who you are? I love it. Montel Williams, thank you very much. Absolutely. Bless you. Thank um, you sir. You're a wonderful guy. Thanks, my friend. And I hope everyone enjoyed this. Remember to tune in for the next episode where Montel Williams will be the host. <laughs> Bye for now. Are you dealing with best life burnout, constantly striving for more, and quite frankly, over it? Maybe you just want more joy, peace, and laughter in your life now. Well, then let's go. Welcome to your new favorite podcast, Hot Happy Mess, hosted by me, your girl, Zuri Hall. We are celebrating our magic in the middle of life's messes. Don't miss new episodes every Wednesday. Listen to the Hot Happy Mess podcast on the iHeartRadio app, on Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. I'm Larry Mishkin, and I'd like to invite you to join Rob Hunt and me on our weekly podcast, The Deadhead Cannabis Show. 
Each week, we explore the latest cannabis and jam band news and reminisce with other deadheads and jam band lovers about the great musical acts that we've seen and heard. Check out a new episode every Monday.